Hello, 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 everyone. So, let's speak more about my uh, religion-based concerns. Fact-checking. It is widely understood that the persons who wrote the Gospels were not eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry and were not historians as we define the term today. Rather, they were educated storytellers who used material from both mostly oral and some written sources, while at the same time adding in some embellishments and myths at their own discretion. There was no fact checking available example no contradicting information sources and no one alive who could testify that any given story was untrue that makes me think when they say that history is on the side of the winners i would say that People who added delusional content to the religious texts, they were the masters of confusion, the masters of bewilderment. And they were the masters of turbulence. That's my comment on that. Okay. Christianity rejects the central thrust of Jesus' message. There can be no doubt the person of Jesus as described in the Gospels is diametrically opposed to the accumulation of earthly wealth and pronounces that being poor is the only viable pathway to salvation. Now, that statement... It's talking about how Jesus was a simple living minimalist, as we would refer to him in our modern time. And it is okay to be rich, to be wealthy. However, what is being stated is that Jesus was not a fan of greed, of vanity. And of of egomaniacs who get wealth and riches in all of the immoral ways. Consider Luke chapter 18, verses 22-27, where Jesus responds to wealthy rulers' question as to how he can attain eternal life. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, 
then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. From the Pope to ministers to priests and to congregants and to those in pulpit positions of any kind and and of leadership positions of any kind and attendees and guests of any kind. The brand of Christianity barely touches on the theme of the virtues of poverty, of relinquishing possessions to help the poor, or the potential evils of wealth. It has discarded the central theme of Jesus' message and instead has substituted a quote-unquote prosperity gospel saying that God will reward you financially if you follow him. This is an important, often overlooked disconnect between the biblical Jesus and the direction that Christianity has evolved. It is near certain that Jesus would not join any of the present-day Christian churches. I'll stop and say there are very few churches that Jesus would love to help and serve and even worship with. Um, Most churches, he would not. And when I say the very few churches, there are a handful who are spending more and more time in the community, in the streets, not being hateful, but being loving. (sighs) Rejecting the prosperity gospel and investing in social justice. So I do my best to be balanced. I'm becoming better at it as I gain in wisdom. You can notice in the podcast. So... A, a lot, even Jesus, it, most mega churches, Jesus would not serve with, would not participate, and would not worship with. He would experience more of him, his true self, in the small churches, in a handful of the medium-sized churches. You know, the ones that are not mega churches, but they're not super small. Um. I think about the fact that Jesus would not be welcomed at the Vatican because he would destroy the Vatican's economy and he would definitely raise holy hell when it comes to the Southern Baptist Convention. He would demolish the Southern Baptist Convention, that's for sure. And the Catholic churches, as well as a lot of Protestant churches, Jesus would be closing permanently way more churches than are being permanently closed now. Um, Most denominations, he would be closing their churches permanently. Very few would he go, okay, I can kick it with these people. And then at the same time, I think that Jesus... Knowing what I read about him, according to what the Bible writers said, Jesus would destroy all the denominations completely. Um, He would destroy all the denominational conventions. Um, Like, 
he would even destroy any entity that claims to be about him that has been proven to be of corruption. And Jesus' heart would be broken that because of Christianized racism that the National Baptist Convention, the Progressive National Baptist Convention had to be created because those two conventions didn't get along. So one members from one had to create the other. And talking about Progressive National Baptist Convention was started by, you know, National Baptist Convention persons. So that would really offend Jesus greatly. He would he would do away with all those conventions actually and say, "Hey, y'all supposed to just be united in mind and heart all about me." But Jesus would not experience that. And then there's more for me uh, to share. It says, God, the struggling author. Christian theology claims that the Bible was written under the inspiration of God, that the scriptures are holy, that they and only they are the direct product of divine authorship, and that everything else ever written lacks the same celestial pedigree. This concept is surely false. The following quote by Sam Harris sums this up nicely. Let's just grant the possibility that there is a creator God who's omniscient, who occasionally authors books, and he's going to give us a book, the most useful book. He's a loving God. He's a compassionate God, and he's going to give us a guide to life. He's got a scribe. The scribe's going to write it down. What's going to be in that book? I mean, just think of how good a book would be if it were authored by an omniscient deity. I mean, there's not a single line in the Bible, the Quran, that could not have been authored by a first century person. There's not one reference to anything. There are pages and pages about how to sacrifice animals and keep slaves and who to kill and why. There's nothing about electricity. There's nothing about DNA. There's nothing about infectious disease, the principles of infectious disease. There's nothing particularly useful, and there's a lot of Iron Age barbarism in there and superstition. This is not a candidate book. The fact that there's nothing in the Bible that could not have been written by and only by men living their own time so overwhelmingly evidence that the Bible is not completely divinely inspired. I don't think the scriptures are completely holy. I don't think the scriptures are completely the direct product of divine authorship. I don't think the Bible was completely inspired by God. I don't think the Bible was completely divinely breathed by God either. Because there are elements of the Bible that causes pandemonium. 
disarray, commotion, untidiness, emotional upsets, disorganization, and convulsions and turmoil and tumults. as well as disorder, the lack of order that our society is experiencing. Some of the dysfunction in society is because of certain biblical writings. And then we have to address this. Um, and it's painful for me to actually address this. It says, Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. The Bible alleges that God commanded Abraham to kill his son Isaac as a test of his faith. Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 18. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thy one and only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt of offering and laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they were both and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son, and he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called on unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thy only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him, behind him a ram caught up in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thy only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and that in thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. 
There are many issues with this story. If it is true, then God is at fault for playing a barbaric and foolish prank. If it is false, it shows the tendency of biblical writers to insert fiction into the scriptures. Why would God test Abraham since he would already know the outcome in advance? Why would God traumatize an innocent boy? This story has caused many Jewish and Christian boys a certain measure of trauma, thinking God might similarly instruct their fathers to kill them. Some children have been murdered because a parent has believed that God was telling them to do it as a test of their faith, and the scripture has been one of the major instigators of these tragedies. Some Christians will claim that this morbid story is not a discredit to the religion because it falls in the Old Testament, but one thing cannot be denied. It is still in the Bibles that they carry to church that are on the back of church pews. In actuality, this story is about the fall of God for becoming entangled in such foolishness. I have, and here's my commentary on that. I have never, so far, I've never met a Christian who had it in them to to commit the immorality of human sacrifice, especially the immorality of child sacrifice concerning their children when it, to God. My own dad has said he couldn't do it when it came to me. So how can God be pro-life but he's for killing born boys, even born girls, even born children that are non-binary. And you chose to have yourself killed in the form of your son form as yourself as father form. So sonly form was the what so was the product of divine torture by the fatherly form to me that shows a lot of mess and A lot of dismay, to be honest. That's a lot of post-traumatic stress that I'm seeing. And I could see the social anxiety and general anxiety that Isaac was feeling. I could see the... I can see that the scriptures paint God as bipolar and schizophrenic and of what used to be called manic depression. Because not to clown people who have mental illnesses, but when it, when I see the scriptures, I'm like, y'all, are, that's exactly how they're painting God when it comes to the Bible writers. Um,
I just... I tend to struggle with these things. Um, Because I really love people. So when I read these things in the Bible, it has definitely... um, caused me just angst. Because I have a conscience, but I don't see God having a conscience. I don't see God having moral sense. I don't see God having a inner voice and a I don't see God having morals. I don't see God feeling guilty about genocide. I don't see God properly handling justice. I don't see that. I don't enjoy anything I'm saying. These things are very troubling to me. And then it says... Chosen people. Christians are obligated to accept the fact that God first chose to minister and support only the Jews and to ignore all others and even to assist the Jews in plundering the neighboring Gentile populations. At the time, there were large civilizations in Asia, Europe, North and South America, Africa, and Australia. People living in these areas did not learn anything about Jesus until centuries later, some even until around 1,500 years later. To consider this fact as sobering, why would a God do this? Ignore humans for tens of thousands of years only to present himself solely to a, de- to a desert tribe on a tiny spot of island. A more reasonable explanation is that the Jewish people invented a God that favored them just like every other culture that has existed. Yeah, I've always rejected the chosen people concept because... It's all about torturous conformity, torturous similarities, torturous congruity, torturous correspondence, torturous resemblance, torturous obedience, torturous willingness, torturous admission, torturous dominance, torturous compliance, torturous agreements. That's just my comments on that. In the Jewish faith, if God chose the Jews as his chosen people, a fact necessary for Christianity to be authentic, why did they suffer so many defeats and tribulations at the hands of their enemies? The outcome of many of these conflicts would make it appear that God had chosen the other side instead. This is best exemplified by the Jewish-Roman War of A.D. 66-73, where the Romans slaughtered the Jews all of the way from Jerusalem to the final stronghold of Masada. Masada. 
It makes no sense that the people backed by an all-powerful God will fall victim to its non-God-aided enemies, much less in such a brutal and convincing fashion. Um... Personally, as I am um, reading these scriptures, um, I see a God who rejects composure. A God who rejects serenity. A God who does not have a peace of mind. And I don't enjoy saying any of these things. I'm just reading with logical lens. And I'm just not sensing any of this. Evolution. Evolution. Evolution demarcation. For those Christians who believe in evolution, there's a noteworthy problem dealing with the starting point when humans first became bound for eternity in the eyes of God. Whenever this happened, there were undoubtedly a lot of people scattered over much of the world. To be clear, there has to be a starting point when God first awarded an eternal life to human beings. Without this demarcation, we would have single-celled animals living for eternity in heaven. Whenever this occurred, it would create a problem. It would mean that many people going to heaven would do so without the company of their parents who would die and not be raised up similar to all the other animals. No matter where the cut was made, this problem was unavoidable. Yeah, it always made me think, why would only humans go to heaven? But not the, but not their pets, not the ones that they fed and even clothed and even put on the hamster wheel, or the meowing cat or the barking dogs. And evolution is supported by most scientists, and creationism is debunked by most scientists. So, there's definitely more for me to share. It gets more and more difficult for me. Um... Bible copying errors. In the 17th century, the English theologian John Mill underwent a detailed study of approximately 100 surviving New Testament manuscripts in an effort to determine the accuracy of the copying process. 
he found that there were 30,000 discrepancies among the texts, indicating this, that scribes had frequently made mistakes in copying scriptures. Today, there are many times that number of known discrepancies, one in particular that led to the doctrine of the virgin birth. If Jesus had come today, the books written by the original authors could have been thoroughly validated for accuracy forever into the future, but because of the time in question, we cannot be confident that what is written in the Bible is a consistent facsimile of what was originally intended. This casts a shadow on the truth claims of Christianity. Ooh. Uh, how exactly am I feeling? I feel a sense of unrest that is combusting in my soul. Um, I'm feeling like I'm on a collision course that's emotionally abusive. Um, What the Bible writers did to our modern society is cold-blooded callous, unfeeling, cruel. And relentless in a cold-hearted way. And there's more that I have to say. The Passover prisoner release. The four gospels state that the Roman governor over Judea, Pontius Pilate, was obligated during the Passover to commit one prisoner's death sentence and to have him released based on the acclamation of those attending the ceremony. There are no Roman records suggesting that such a custom existed. Further, the implication of such a practice would be absurd. It would mean that the Jews could plan for someone to perform a heinous crime just before the Passover, then have that perpetrator released. This fictional story was first added to Mark's gospel and then copied by the writers of the subsequent gospels. The author of Mark used this tale, perhaps inspired by a similar story in Homer's The Odyssey, to shift blame for the crucifixion away from the Romans and toward the Jews. It is likely that Barabbas, translated as son of the father, the name of the criminal allegedly chosen by the crowd for release, was actually a nickname used for Jesus. So, in effect, the crowd is actually demanding the release of Jesus, finding that his arrest was unwarranted. When the author of Mark was confronted with the folklore that the Jews were asking 
for the release of Barabbas. He simply made Barabbas into a separate individual and then concocted the myth of the prisoner release tradition. Wow. I feel like metaphorically the Bible writers are giving me head or respiratory congestion, cough, sore throat, sickness, head cold, sinus troubles, chest colds, the common coughs, the whooping coughs, the flu, and bronchial irritations. That's how they're making me feel right now. Roman census. The Gospel of Luke states that a Roman census was conducted during the time of Jesus' birth, B.C. 4. There is no record of this in Roman history. According to the Romans' meticulous records, the only census that took place during this time frame was in A.D. 6-7, and it did not include the areas of Nazareth and Bethlehem. According to Luke, the residents were required to travel to their cities of birth to be counted. This absurd requirement was never applied to any census that the Romans conducted throughout their empire. This would have involved cases where families would have been split apart going to different cities and it would have devastated the region's economy. Obviously, the Romans would want to know how many people are living currently in each area rather than how many were born in a certain city. The reason for this article from the writer of this gospel is evident. Jesus was known by many to have been born and raised in Nazareth, but the scriptures say that the Savior is to be born in Bethlehem. Therefore, some device was needed to convince followers that Jesus was not born in Nazareth, as everyone had assumed, but rather that he had the appropriate credentials of the Savior. Further, that device had to entail something of a compulsory nature to explain why a full-term pregnant woman was transported 90 miles on a donkey away from her home and her doulas and midwives. As a side note, this deception by the author of Luke provides some evidence that Jesus was a true historical figure, given that a mythical person could just as easily have been invented was born and raised in Bethlehem. Um, most scholars say that Jesus actually existed. I'm just going by what the scholars said. Um, there may be a lot of mythical... elements of Jesus that the Bible writers may have placed upon him and they may have created embellishments concerning Jesus, the Bible writers, what they did. Um, I just... have really been struggling... with these type of stories because metaphorically I'm feeling like I'm experiencing influenza and bronchitis that's how sickening What I just experienced is Judas. The story of Judas the traitor is fraught with inconsistency. First and foremost, it should be obvious that what he originally did actually hastened the salvation of humankind as defined by Christianity. Without Jesus' capture and execution, everybody would still be subject to the condemnation of original sin as well as their personal sins. Second, Jesus was not 
hiding during his time in Jerusalem. He was out and about performing miracles and routinely in plain view of the Roman authorities, making it unnecessary for anyone to rat him out for arrest. Third, if we are to believe Christian doctrine, Jesus knew that he was about to Jesus knew he was to be executed and that this was the principal point of his mission. So why would he call out Judas as a traitor, both at the last supper in the garden at the time of his arrest? Judas actually had performed a beneficial contribution to Jesus' mission. To make some sense of this story, one has to assume that it was changed to fit a new narrative that placed blame on the Jews for the crucifixion and painting Judas as a traitor was a part of that effort. What probably happened, assuming that the story was not completely made up, was that Judas was sent by Jesus to entice the Roman soldiers to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus didn't expect that God would miraculously intervene to defeat the Romans and begin the reign of Jesus as the king of the restored kingdom of Israel. Wow. The more and more I study the Bible, the more and more at times that I see that the Bible has become big business. The church has become big business and Christianity has become big business. Jesus finds no ecstasy in that. Jesus finds no joy in that. Jesus finds no delight in that. Jesus finds no happiness in that. And Jesus finds no rapture in that. Then it says, I'm just getting all the doubts out. Resurrection consequences. Um, the Bible suggests that Jesus rose from the dead and made appearances to hundreds of people before ascending into heaven. It is unlikely that this would have escaped the notice of Herod and Pilate and the vast majority of the Roman occupiers not to mention the Jews who would have either directly witnessed this amazing phenomenon or heard about it from credible sources. This would have provided proof that Jesus was a divine being prompting Herod and Pilate to convert along with the Romans and the Jews with Christianity then becoming the official religion of Judea. Obviously, this did not happen. The fact that it didn't suggest strong that Jesus did not rise from the dead. One thing is certain, if Jesus actually rose from the dead, there would be no separation between Judaism and Christianity. They would be one and the same. Yeah, as a person who grew up believing that Jesus rose from the dead, the child me still hopes that's true. And um, this is all rough, but at the same time, I'm glad that I don't commit bibliolatry, Bible worship, making the Bible Yahweh over Yahweh. It's because to believe that the Bible is completely divinely breathed and completely divinely inspired and completely 
infallible and completely inerrant, it makes one prioritize the Bible, the book, literature, being more important behind, being more important than the centrality of the literature. So basically, it's um, it's Christianized, sanctioned, superficial, materialistic idol worship. It's idol worship of the Bible when you believe such things. Other gospel books. The selection of gospels to be included in the Bible was made by a council of Christian bishops conveyed in Nicaea and Bithynia by the Roman Emperor Constantine one in AD three twenty five. At this council, four Gospels were selected from a total of approximately 60 that were in use at the time. Three of the four Gospels selected are called the Synoptic Gospels, Mark, Luke, and Matthew. These were not independent efforts, but had many elements borrowed and shared among them. The fourth Gospel, John, is very different from the other three and presents a somewhat contradictory theology. The other 56 or so Gospels that were discarded do not agree for the most part with the four that were selected. Examples of the Gospel of Thomas the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of the Nazarenes, the Gospel of the Abionites, and the Gospel of the Hebrews. It is likely the truth of what happened lies buried amid, amid the numerous tales told by all these Gospels with various true and fictional elements scattered throughout. But what should be troubling to a questioning believer is that the Council undoubtedly preferentially selected the Gospels that were favorable to the Romans, the ones that made them look good, as an example, and excluded whatever did not flatter them. It is certain that this process resulted in a whitewashed portrayal of history. See what I mean? The Bible was not manufactured by God. The Bible was manufactured by primitive, misogynistic males who enjoyed patriarchal oppression of females, women and girls. (sighs) That's my only comment. Then... Too many messiahs. Most Christians believe that Jesus was a unique figure in his time, a one-of-kind preacher who mesmerized fathers with his wisdom and magical acts. It's not true. There are many messiahs at this time, including Hezekiah the bandit, Simon of Perea, Athronges the shepherd boy, and Judas the Galilean. Notice another Judas. That was a common name back then, just like Jesus. By the way, Jesus is the Greek Jesus means Joshua, and Joshua means Jesus. Greek language, think about it. In addition, there were many other preachers and prophets who were gathering followers and preaching a messianic message about the coming of the kingdom of God. Some advocated a violent overthrow of the Roman occupiers as a prelude to the coming. Others stressed a less violent approach during 
including repentance, prayers, and beseeching of God the deliverance. Added to this list is the most popular preacher of all, John the Baptist. Jesus was probably well, Jesus was possibly a follower of John until John's arrest and execution, exemplified by the subservient act of submitting himself for baptism, and then he may have assumed leadership of John's movement. Jesus was just one of many itinerant preachers of his day, and there was nothing particularly unique about him, because all were preaching the same ideas, and almost all of them ended up being crucified for the crime of sedition against the Roman Empire. It's a historical fluke that Christians pray to Jesus instead of John or Simon or Hezekiah. Mm. What I have always been concerned with is, you know, I've seen passages where Jesus claims to be God, which I grew up believing in my child, me enjoys that. And I've seen passages where Jesus wasn't big on calling himself God. I'm not saying you have to announce who you are all the time. At the same time, there were conversations allegedly in the Bible that you have to say what you are. Depending upon the nature of the conversation, not saying it would be quite deceptive. So, how does this make me feel? A part of me feels irritable. It's a touchy subject. It's not making me excitable. It does make me nervous because it is edgy. Um, There's more. Um, I'm taking my time in terms of talking about this. So in my view, the reason why I um, I've been saying what I've been saying is because doubts 
need to be a way of expanding our inner beauty instead of silencing our inner beauty. And I see religion seeing doubts as a way of opposing their mythological tendencies and that should absolutely happen. It says deliberate editing and fabrication of scripture in addition to the copying errors made by scribes there's overwhelming evidence that the church and those associated with the church undertook a concerted campaign to quote-unquote improve scripture for the edification and ensnaring of its growing audience of followers. This deception was justified as an effective means to draw people into the faith by making it easy for them to accept the truth of its claims. A good description of this deception comes from Father Jean Messler, 1664-1729. A French Catholic priest was also an atheist. Wow. How can you be both? That still is stunning me right now. Discussing this point around the year 1700 translated to English. It is no use saying that the gospel stories have always been regarded as holy and sacred, that they have been faithfully preserved without any tampering. It was common practice among the writers who copied these stories to add, delete, or alter the text as seemed, as seemed good to them. The Christians themselves cannot deny this, for St. Jerome said explicitly in many places in his prologues that the texts have been corrupted and falsified, having already been through the hands of many people who added and cut out what they pleased and with the result. As he said that there were as many different readings as there were different texts. There are many known examples of forgeries in the scriptures and likely even many more that remain unknown. This renders an objective historian in a position of great disadvantage in trying to reconstruct what really happened. This point is discussed in detail at the following website, badnewsaboutchristianity.com slash cc zero hyphenated fabricating dot htm wow i noticed that the bible writers suffered from egotism egoism conceit vanity pride Self-glorification, self-worship, arrogance, overconfidence, haughtiness, insolence, a warped sense of assurance, a warped sense of self-confidence, warped sense of self-love, a warped sense of modesty, a warped sense of humility, and a warped sense of meekness. And those who altered the text and corruptly falsified the text, those People, even the church, are egotists, conceited persons, boasters, egoists, and braggarts.
and then I must admit another thing. This will be the last thing because of this episode. And I will absolutely make sure to bring this fact up, which is Extant New Testament manuscripts are not even close to being originals. The oldest existing New Testament manuscripts are all copies of copies and certainly contain many errors, omissions, and deliberate edits. The following is from religioustolerance.org slash S-Y-M-E-S-O-2.htm. The original Greek manuscripts of the books of the New Testament have not survived. What are extent are handwritten copies of copies of copies. Over 5,600 fragments or complete copies in the original Greek with 94% dating from the 9th century. The earliest is a tiny fragment from the Gospel of John dated to the first half of the 2nd century. The earliest complete copy of the Gospel of Mark, which was written about the year 70, dates from the 4th century. Over our earliest copies of Paul's writings come about 150 years after he wrote them. Mistakes and intentional alterations in the copying process resulted in thousands of variations in these texts until the invention of the printing press in the 15th century. The differences were mostly spelling and grammatical errors, but also there were some deliberate omissions, insertions, and insertions and mistranslations in the New Testament. There are some significant there are some significant differences and contradictions in the biblical texts that have a bearing on historical accuracy in Christian theology. The earliest surviving version of the New Testament, the Codex Sinaiticus, circa 300 CE, contains the Book of the Shepherd of Hermas and the Epistle of Barnabas that had been read in churches for years. They were eventually expunged from the canonical New Testament for not reflecting Orthodox thinking. There are other books that are actually referenced by New Testament writers that are missing from the canon. For example, Paul urges believers to read his letter to the Laodiceans, see Colossians chapter 4, verse 16. It is disputed as to whether the surviving Latin copy originally in some Bibles is genuine. Also, the writer of Jude references the Jewish apocryphal book of Enoch as though it was authoritative, Jude chapter 4. Jude chapters 14 and 15. It is ironic that Jude is accepted into the biblical canon, but the book he quotes from is not. The early New Testament was a fluid entity for many decades determining what was really the word of God was controversial. Ultimately, men who did not personally know the authors of the scriptures made the decisions. Very few Christians realize how much time separates the existing manuscripts from the originals. For God to be establishing a new religion, this is an abysmal way to have done it. Even if the original writers wrote precisely what God wanted them to, we don't have reliable access to those divinely inspired words.
I noticed that when it comes to the Bible assemblage, there's a lot of presumptuous um, and pompous creators of the Bible. Book burning. The book is a universal symbol of learning, critical thought, open-mindedness, and celebration of new and enlightening ideas. So naturally, a religion built on flimsy evidence would view books as an enemy to a success. The story of Christians burning books is a long and sorry tale. In fact, book burning is discussed in the Bible, Acts chapter 19, verses 18 through 20. Many also of these who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together, began burning them in the sight of everyone, and they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. The early history of book burning is described at this website, rejection of pascalwager.net slash bookburn.html. The moment Christianity came into power in the 4th century, books that do not conform to its teaching were ferociously destroyed. Around 363-364, the Christian emperor, Chalvian, ordered the pagan library Antioch to be burnt, leaving the helpless citizens watching the books go up in flames. Continuing this trend around the year 372, the Christian emperor, Valens D., um, he died 378, as part of his persecution of pagans, ordered the burning of non-Christian books in Antioch. The main target were pagan books on divination and magic, but most of the books burned were mainly in liberal arts and law. Fearful of the emperor, many provinces of the Eastern Empire burned their own libraries to avoid his wrath. Perhaps the greatest single intellectual loss of the classical world was the destruction of the Library of Alexandria. At one time, it was it was it was reputed to house about 700,000 books on subjects ranging from literature, history to science and philosophy. In the year 391, the Bishop of Alexandria, Theophilus, died 412, and his quest to destroy paganism led a group of crazed monks and laymen destroyed all the books in the Great Library. No other great libraries were spared by the Christians. Up to the 5th century, many Greco-Roman cities had libraries, which housed more than 100,000 books. These were all destroyed by the Christians. Pope Gregory the Great, circa 540-604, was the person responsible for destroying the last collection of older Roman works in the city. Book burning by Christians has continued into the modern era, though normally via a different, more euphemistic approach, such as book removal from libraries or school curricula. It also takes the form of removing controversial information from school textbooks while adding fictional information. I see why the Bible Bell is returning to the book burning days because it all starts with book banning days. Mm. Any belief system that fears competing ideas to the extent that it feels it must destroy or obscure the documentation of those ideas is a weak enterprise that should be avoided by any clear thinking person. But if you were to burn the Bible, Congress would go ape shit over that. But they're not going ape shit over the fact that these punk ass piece of shit motherfuckers 
were doing their best to psychologically fuck us over by preventing us from accessing all the other wisdom that could have enhanced this global society that we're all fucking living in. I'll end with this. St. Augustine co-signs unbaptized babies to hell. St. Augustine 354-430 AD was a Christian theologian whose writings influenced the early development of Christian theology. He taught that babies who die before being baptized are sentenced to hell. This brings up so many insanities that's hard to know where to start. But first, it illuminates the inane Bronze Age mythological idea of original sin, that the sin of Adam and Eve was impressed on every human such that every newborn baby is solid with this sin and deserving of hellfire. Any thinking person must realize that this is complete and total nonsense, meaning bullshit. It further assumes the accuracy of the Genesis creation story now thoroughly debunked by science it makes God to be so capricious and arbitrary that a baby's eternal destiny is either in either a glorious heaven or a gruesome hell is balanced around whether or not it dies before or after it is sprinkled with water amid a string of holy words in quotations The concept of original sin is arguably the worst invention of Christianity. It creates an unnecessary and it creates an unnecessarily pessimistic view of the human condition that has led to the idea that the body and its normal functions are sinful in their own sight and that only the soul can be in a pure state. St. Augustine has been overruled by subsequent theologians. Most Christians today believe that unbaptized babies go to heaven. Of course, this view presents some problems of its own. It makes baptism an unnecessary, quote-unquote, rite or sacrament. Again, it makes baptism an unnecessary rite or sacrament, R-I-T-E. It also makes abortion one of the greatest taboos of Christians to be something of of an assist to helping a soul get into heaven. No matter how this problem is going to solve, it creates an even bigger problem and shines a radiant light on the on the illogicality of Christian doctrine. So, I noticed that the uh, I noticed that Saint Augustine was egotistic. Conceited, vain, boastful, inflated, pompous, arrogant, insolent, puffed up, self-centered, self-glorifying, presumptuous, blustering, showy, boisterous, haughty, snobbish, contemptuous, proud, bullying, sneering, aloof, pretentious, assuming, cocky, brazen, impertinent, selfish, bragging, insulting, theatrical, garish, gaudy, reckless, impudent, um domineering (sighs) 
fuck up that he was.